The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today. And we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow if you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here is Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. My name is Dave Goldberg. I'm your your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform engineering education and higher education at www.bigbeacon.org. And in every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. Today, we are joined by best-selling business author Dan Pink. Dan, welcome to the show. Well, it's a real treat to have you on the show, Dan, and I'm not sure you remember, but your generous encouragement of engineering education reforms back in 2006 and 2007 played an important role in the founding of the iFoundry Incubator, Educational Incubator at the University of Illinois. Um, and of that course, led I remember, to... I remember, I remember being down there in, uh, in, in Champaign-Urbana for uh, that, that conference. That's right, and, uh, and that helped change, turn things around, and... And uh, that led to the founding of Big Beacon and, and the writing of uh, the, the book that Mark Somerville and I just wrote, A Whole New Engineer, which uh, is a bit of a ripoff of, of, uh, of, of uh, your, the title of your second book and pays homage to your second book, uh, uh, A Whole New Mind. Uh, yeah, I consider it. I consider it a tribute rather than a ripoff. But that's well, uh, okay, and that, that was the sense in which it was I, intended. And yeah. thank you for that. <laughs> So Dan, we're gonna we're gonna jump into some of you know some of the cool stuff that you're thinking about. But um, you know, looking at your background, you were trained as an attorney. You've you've worked at the highest levels of government. You're a best-selling business author, and and now you're the host of a television show. But let's let's go back to the log cabin in Bexley, Ohio, and and other early events <laughs> in your life. You know, what were some of the early influences uh, in your life that set you uh, onto these later developments? Uh, so yeah, so yeah, I, I did not, you know, I, I like the mythology you're trying to create. I did not grow up in a, in a log cabin. Um, okay. I did grow up, I, I did grow up, I, so I grew up in central Ohio, uh, as you say, uh, in Columbus. And that was, that probably had a big effect. Uh, the, the older I get, it's interesting. The more I realize, it's interesting to me, the more I realize how much being raised in the Midwest had an effect on me, uh, in terms of just, um, compared to not to diss the people on the coast, but uh, just in terms of basic norms of kind of politeness and good graces and all that. I'm actually kind of thankful that I grew up in the Midwest for that reason. As for the big influences there in the Pink Law Cabin, 
Huh. Um, I think the big, you know, I mean, I, I went to, uh, I went to a local public school. The local public school was, um, just a few blocks from the house that I lived in most of my childhood. And it was a kind of school where the elementary school was basically in one building. And then in the adjoining building was the junior high and the building adjoining that was the high school. So I basically took the same walk to school from second grade to uh, 12th grade. And, but I think the biggest influence for me, Growing up, were the especially in Central Ohio, were the availabilities of uh, the availability of outstanding public libraries. As I reflect back, I think that had a bigger effect on me than almost anything else that went on in that world, much more than my school. In, the in, library in, the in what way? In what way did the libraries affect you so much? Oh uh, well, what I could, it, it became a kind of a refuge. So mm-hmm. it became a place where I could go and just hang out by myself. Uh, and it became a place that I think really got me it got me interested in reading and reading a lot at a pretty young age. I mean, you know, as a kid. Um, and, you know, there's a great deal of autonomy in a library where if you have a library card, unlike in school, you can read whatever you want. You know, you can you can you can you can explore whatever you want. And so I was always I always went to lot and then in downtown Columbus, which is just a very, very short bus ride away. Uh, there was a just glorious, large uh, main branch of the Columbus Public Library, which was a great, great library. So Ohio, say where I grew up, has a tradition of really great public libraries. And so having access to that, you know, way before the days of Amazon and being able to find books and read books and go to the library and find out stuff and explore myself, um, I, think it's one of the th- well, I think it's one of the reasons I became a writer. That's interesting in, in the sense that, you know, so now we're, we're all connected when we have this access, but your access uh, uh, came came from the libraries. In, in your first book, uh, Free Agent Nation, you opened the, it's actually an interesting story about some events in, in the White House when you were a speechwriter um, for the vi- for Vice President Gore, but uh, you opened the book with uh, stories about your own decision to become a free agent. Uh, what yeah, you know, so that, yeah, that was a pretty big decision. What was it that led you to shun more traditional work, um, continue at the highest levels of government, and unleash the Dan Pink that we now, now know and love? <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, uh, you, you know, at a certain, I, you know, at that point, I was I had a pretty decent job, and but I was, I was in my early thirties. My wife and I had just had a kid. And I don't know, you know, it sort of felt like an inflection point that if if I didn't start doing something that was really true to who I was, something that I truly wanted to do, then uh, I sort of felt the window closing. It was probably a false sense of the window closing. But the gist of it was, you know, I liked my boss, uh, Vice President Gore. Uh, I just couldn't stand working in politics any longer. There was a lot of nonsense um, involved. And, And I realized probably late, a little bit later than a lot of people that I was cut out to be a writer. It's funny, as much as I read as a kid um, when I was going through college and then, I, and then through law school, I really never imagined becoming a writer. Um, writing was always something I quote-unquote did on the side. Um, and I finally realized that, you know, in the early 30s, that what I was doing on the side was probably what I should be doing for real. And so, uh, so I left that job. And again, it's not a big, you know, it's, you know, it's a, I'm a, as a middle, as a married middle class American with a decent education, it's not a massive, uh, gargantuan risk. I left my job to try to see if I can make it on my own. My wife, who then was a lawyer at the Justice Department, she kept her job. She kept her health insurance. 
And so we decided to take a couple of years and say, you know, can I make this work? And if I couldn't make it work, I just, I was, my plan was to just go back and get a job, a real job. But, um, 17, almost 18 years later now, coming up in 18 years, uh, 18 years later, um, we're still, you know, have our heads above water. Yeah, I'll say, and 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 that's that's interesting, and it's it's interesting in the you know. So Mark and I write in in, in our book about this. The, the, we use the word unleashing, and we talk about the courage. And so and so, you're you're saying that the threshold of the courage, because of the way you did it, wasn't that large. But it, there, that's it's still a sense that you're 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 walking away from 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 quite a lot. Was was there um, was there a person? Was there an, a, a a personal influence in your life or was there someone who trusted you in a way that let you did that? Was it a matter of trusting yourself? How it's, it still seems surprising to walk away from many of the things that you had at the time. Um, yeah, you know, I think the, the person who was most intimately involved was in encouraging. It was my wife, um, yeah. who, you know, got to see me on whether she wanted to or not day in and day out and realize that, you know, what I was doing probably wasn't, um, uh, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but wasn't true to myself. And yeah. I don't mean that in kind of a woo-woo way, but, you know, wasn't true to myself. And that was going to, you know, and in doing something, spending time in doing something that wasn't true to yourself was going to have implications for our family. It was going to have implications for our family life. It was going to have implications for our economic life. And again, you know, it wasn't a massive you know, I do think that there are there are people out there who take who make moves in their lives yep. that do require extraordinary courage. I, I just yep. don't think that the amount of courage necessary to to do what I to do what I was doing was that was that massive. It took a little bit. Yep. Um, I, I think the bigger force for a lot of people is inertia, rather than mm. uh, how do you overcome inertia? And uh, overcoming inertia is less about courage than it is about just giving things a push. Hmm. Nice and well, and so okay and I and right? and so and, and we sort of delved into the personal side maybe quite quite a bit there and appreciate your sharing. So you've now you've written five books, uh, all five, in some way, shape, or form have something to do with this new world of work that we're all facing. So what yep. what is it about this theme that that you found so in, engaging in your writing? Um. Yeah, I I think that it's it's funny you say that because it, it it connects back to it connects back to your very first question. Um, there is, I'm not a, I'm not a person who has epiphanies or has catalytic events in his life or anything like that. Um, it, it thinks for me things move very very slowly and very very murkily. However, there was there is a moment that I remember, and it actually involves the library uh, when I was. Uh, 10 years old. I'm 50 years old. I was born in 1964. When I was 10 years old, my mother brought home a book from the library, and it was a book called Working, and it was by Studs Terkel. And now my parents were both Chicagoans, um, and uh, Studs Terkel wrote a lot of, was from Chicago, wrote a lot about Chicago, so I guess they had a certain affinity for him. And so she brought this book home, Working, and it's a famous book now, and it was, it was really, all he did was interviews with people about their jobs. He used to talk to people about what they what they did for a living. I mean, he he would talk to, you know, welders and school principals and taxi drivers, and and um and I, you know, was ten years old uh, at the time and a huge baseball fan, so I read the baseball player um, interview, and so that was pretty interesting. And of course, being ten years old, uh, I read the prostitute, and then I um 
And then I started reading The Taxi Driver, and then I started reading The Foreman at a Plant. And I just found it so interesting hearing people talking about their work. And from a very, very young age, I was always fascinated by what people did for a living and what it was like to work. And even to the point where you go into a department store, you know, sort of sneaking behind the counter and say, what does it look like, literally, from the perspective of a clerk who works there? And I've just been sort of weirdly obsessed with work my entire life. And I think the reason is that work, if you think about what, what Americans especially do, people like you, Dave, or, or your co-author, or me, you know, we spend over half of our waking hours at work. Think about that. Spend over half of our waking hours at work. It's the predominant thing that we do when we're awake. And so it becomes this incredible window through which you can understand human beings more broadly. You know, what do they do? Why do they do it? How do they do it? How do they get along? What are their frustrations? What are their joys? What, you know, um, what keeps them going? And so, to me, just the workplace and work in general has just is a window into humanness. And yes. I think that's why I found it so endlessly fascinating. Well, and 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 since you know the, the Studs Terkel book, work has changed quite a lot. And and how oh, yeah. is, how is how is work different now? And and why is it so different? Oh my gosh, so many reasons, and reasons that, that you guys, that you Mark write about, but, you, you know, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's so many, there's so many different changes in the world of work, and again, it, it reflects a lot of our changes in society. So when that book was written, um, women in the workplace were an aberration. Now you have more women in the workplace than men. That's an extraordinary thing in the United States. It's just extraordinary. Um, so that's, that's obviously a huge change. Um, you have, you were a much more diverse country racially and ethnically, so that's reflected in the workplace. But I think at the level of what people actually do, one of the things that you see is, you know, a huge difference from, from, from that book. And I, I mean, truly, really, I, I have it here. I mean, I literally have a copy of it on my desk. I always keep that book on my desk. Uh, if you look at, let me just see what they, what what kind of professions there are, and you can just go in there and you can see how radically different things things were. So if you look at a, um, um, let me just see here for a second. Where is the index? Forgive me here. Okay, you know, like a steel worker. You look at what a steel worker is. One of the first things that he introduced. Steel worker today, to the extent we have any, are wildly different kinds of. Um, wildly different kinds of professions. If you look at what farmers do, there are farm workers in there. What we have is you have, you know, if you look at, you know, you have farmers who are, um, you know, using GPS to plant their crops yes. and using bioengineered, uh, bioengineered seeds. Um, you have, um, you know, there's a strip miner in there. We barely do any strip mining today. There is a, um, okay, here we go. How about this? So, like my kids won't even know what this is, a hotel switchboard operator. Um, <laughs> You know, you now have digital switching in, in phones. And so well, I think one of the big, I think one of the big, big changes, and again, you, you guys write about it too, is that um, a lot of the things that people did on the job were relatively routine. That is, they were about following a script, following a recipe. Uh, at a certain point, they were about following a script with your body, turning the same screw the same way on an assembly line or plugging and unplugging the appropriate uh, part of the phone connection, you know, at the appropriate time. Later on, they were about processing paper. If you look at, to me, I always think of these great images of those Billy Wilder films where he would have a long shot of 
an insurance company. It would be just desk after desk after desk after desk after desk, and maybe people were essentially processors. Yes. Um, and so what's happened now is that routine work is invaluable. Routine work can be done cheaper overseas, certainly certain kinds of manufacturing work, and, and even now certain kinds of white-collar work. But I think even more so, you know, technology is able to do certain kinds of routine algorithmic skills. And so I think the real, the real challenge for our age and the challenge, again, that you guys write about is, you know, how do you develop a workforce that has the skills that can't be replicated by machines and algorithms, indeed, that, that, that complement those skills, that complement what machines and algorithms do? And that, those, that's, a, that's a conversation that was not even part of uh, this book in 1974. Right. That's right. And, and so I think we want to hang on to that thought. And, and uh, after the break, this is uh, Big Beacon Radio with special guest Ann Pink, uh, best-selling author and thought leader. And when we come back from break, we're going to continue this conversation about how work has changed and, and what the implications of these changes are for the, the world of education. it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Change is coming to higher education like a freight train, but transforming higher education is challenging, full of risks and opportunities for administrators and faculty members alike. If you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom, if you are starting a brand new school or academic program, or if you'd like to boost your own career, let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. Dave is a leading speaker, author, strategist, trainer, and coach with experience in helping bring successful change to both academic institutions and careers around the globe. To learn more, contact Dave Goldberg today at deg at 3joy.com or go to the 3 Joy Associates website at www.3joy.com today. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. 
To find out more about our programs, be sure to visit our website at bigbeacon.org. That's bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. I'm your host, Dave Goldberg, back with our guest, uh, uh, Dan Pink. Uh, you know, Dan, that was a really interesting uh, uh, segment and in, in our conversation about how work has changed and how we've gone from, from routine work to, to work that requires um, um, more creativity, more imagination, uh, and, and in a way that we, we didn't even talk about work in that way. Work was something that was fairly routine uh, and, exactly. and we kind of knew what it was. So, um, uh, you know, work has been changing rapidly and relentlessly now for, you know, for a couple of decades probably. And um, in, in what ways is, is education, especially higher education, uh, keeping up with those changes or not? Well, it depends. Uh, I mean, I, I think that a lot of higher education is up for grabs right now, and I think higher education in general is asking itself some pretty fundamental questions. Uh, among them, you know, what is higher education for? What is a college or university for? And I, there's, a, there's a complex answer to that. If you think about it in terms of the economy, uh, college and, a college and university degree always had what economists call a signaling function where it essentially it signaled to prospective employers that you were competent, basically, that you could show up on time, you had, you know, decent um, math and verbal skills probably, and you could learn how to do a white-collar job. Uh, now I think that the signaling function of college is the, the signal is a lot weaker and a lot murkier. And I think the interesting question is, will there be other signals that are going to be, end up being more powerful or as powerful as a college degree? And to what extent is this going to change what we teach in college and, and how we teach it? Um, and certainly for engineers, I think it's true for all, all professions, but, you know, engineers are at some level are at the white-hot center of that. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, um, it's, it's remarkable how, how um, this has all changed and, 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 and so quickly and, and – um, and, and you know we were talking about free agent nation and in a whole new mind you sort you talked about this moving from narrow technical expertise and right. um and uh, to something more integrative you had your you had in, in that book you had six senses right um uh, what should we be doing um to educate more you know the engineer oh. of the future or the well, accountant I, I of the future about, or the lawyer of the yeah. future. What? What? what yeah, are, yeah, yeah. What again, are, I think, it's, I think you're doing? right. I think it's ultimately the same question. And and so the question is, um, the the question is what you know? How can we? How can we basically? I think the real question is how can we train these young people for their future rather than our past? Yes. And it's remarkable how much of our train our training was on things that were as you were saying before were fairly routine. Um, and I think what we have to do is we have to give people that base, you know, in the early, early parts of their education, that solid base in literacy and numeracy and scientific literacy, uh, but then uh, do things, again, to use your word again, that are, that are a little bit more integrative. So what, what, what would that be? That would mean, I think, um, it surprises me how sluggishly much of higher education has moved into multidisciplinary things. Uh, higher education ends up being one of the most siloed places in in, in, in American life. And I think what's interesting is that the silos are deeper and more ferocious the more elite the institution. 
So, um, so you have very few courses in, in, in college that are multidisciplinary. We're still frog marching kids from math to, to uh, chemistry to literature to Spanish to anthropology, and there's relatively little multidisciplinary offerings, relatively little um, uh, multi, uh, uh, multidisciplinariness in the institution in general. I think what's interesting about that is that what you have is you have students taking it on their own, and you see a rise in, in dual degrees, in, in, in double majors, yes. because students are saying, oh, I, I'm interested in biology, uh, I'm interested in genetics, but you can't deal with genetics today without having some kind of background in philosophy, because every single seems like every kind of breakthrough in, 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 in medicine in general, but genetics and genomics in particular, raise certain kinds of ethical questions, so you need some kind of way to reckon with those. So they'll say, I, I know what the world of work is going to be like, so I'm going to double major in biology and philosophy, um, yes. and I'm going to make the multidisciplinariness myself. So I think that the multidisciplinariness is one. Um, you know, I, again, as you already figured out with the iFoundry back at Illinois, I don't think that in engineering or in any other field, there's enough emphasis on making. Uh, there's enough emphasis on actually doing stuff rather than just studying stuff. Um, and that could, you know, I think about my time in law school. I could have gotten through law school basically essentially without ever writing a brief, without ever writing a contract. It's unbelievable. Um, and so, um, so much greater emphasis on doing and making things. Um, I have come to believe even more ferociously in another thing, which I haven't written a lot about it, only a little bit so far, is, you know, we, we tend to think that education, whether it's higher education or elementary and secondary education, is all about problem solving. We want kids to be good problem solvers. And we do. I'm not, I'm not going to say that's entirely wrong. But, you know, in this world where simple problems are easily figured out, without human intervention. How do I drive from my house to Braddock Park in Clifton, Virginia? Uh, you know, that's a problem. That's a problem. I can solve that problem. I ask Google Maps. Um, how, there are various kinds of problems in our life. These, these sort of single, discrete, um, uh, single-topic, single-discipline, clearly-defined problems are we're able to solve those other ways. And so what I think we really need is that we need people to be good problem finders as much as good problem solvers. Yeah. How do you surface latent problems? How do, you, how do you come up with the right question to ask rather than just being a vending machine for answers? How do you uh, unearth hidden problems? How do you look around corners and anticipate problems? And so this move from problem solving as the cornerstone skill, I think, to problem finding at the cornerstone skill is, um, is important. Now, the good news in all of this is that in higher education, uh, and you know from Olin and other kinds of ventures, higher, some parts of higher education, some parts of secondary education, some parts of elementary education, there are people who are out there doing really cool experiments and trying to do stuff in different ways. Yeah, and and you know this emphasis on narrowness, and actually, and kind of thinking back on a, on a whole new mind in, in a certain way, it was it was it, it it was almost an attack on on narrow expertise more generally. In a certain sense, if we put it in an, an economist terms, um, you know, the the returns to expertise are diminished. Uh, it's it's not that they've gone to zero, but but being a narrow expert isn't what it what it once was because you know somebody can use a Google Maps or somebody can go online and get an answer to a a well defined right. 
Here's what, here's, so there's here's, this. Here's, I mean, what I hear, what I hear all the time, and I can't remember whether you guys wrote about this too, is what I hear from employers all the time, which it sounded silly, but makes sense. Not a bad metaphor. Is uh, is they're looking for people, employers are looking for T-shaped people, um, meaning that you shape like a capital T. That is, you have some depth. If you don't have any depth at all, you're a dilettante. But if you have only depth. You're not that useful. You have to have some breadth. That's the top of the T, the, the, the part of the T that's going horizontally. And so you have to have that depth and some breadth. You have to be able to take your expertise and apply it to other lines of business, to other cultures, other languages. And so it's a combination of depth. Uh, it's a combination of depth and breadth. Yep. And, you know, and, and uh, along with that, I mean, and you, you, know, you see it in you see it in technical fields, and, and and other people have said this before, but the capacity to 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 know how to learn, it's a, the capacity to learn is is as important as anything you actually know. So if you look at the people, you know, I, I, I've got a daughter who's likely to pursue engineering in college, I and mean, that's what she's, you know, she's constituted that way. She's probably going to do it. You know, I look at the sort of the engineering that she might learn her freshman year and what she might be doing as an engineer eight year you know, eight years after that, and it's probably going to be wildly different things. Yeah. So what really matters is that she understand the basics, which is I think really the basis of science and some of the principles of engineering, and does she have the capacity to work hard and to learn all the time? No, that and that's great stuff. I so I've heard it talked about it, it, that we need dynamic T's. We need people that can then yeah. not only die that they know something, but then they can dive deeply into an area that they, that they need to learn about to, to go solve a problem that they found. I, I think that's a nice way to put it. Yeah. 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 Cause it's not static. And that's, that's the other thing. Nothing, you know, there's, there's not, um, yeah. It, and I think that that's something that, that a lot of educators, a lot of employers, a lot of individuals haven't reckoned with is just how dynamic things are right now. We used to have, I, and it's called the Thanksgiving turkey model of, of education, where you basically cook people in, in elementary and secondary school and then maybe in university, and then you serve them up, and that was it. And now that's, you know, it's much more, um, it's, it's, it's much more dynamic. Indeed, I would say it's, it's probably hard to find in many professions a, a defined boundary between what is working and what is learning. You know, and we've been examining here this you know, sort of the content of education, what education, you know, what is education, what is it about, what is, what are, what's the subject matter. But, um, you know, one of the, I think your book Drive really rocked a lot of uh, educators' worlds in, in, a, in a good way. Um, and and, and in, in Drive, you examine our beliefs and understanding regarding motivation and, and moving from a world of carrots and sticks to greater self-determination and intrinsic motivation. What are... What does this mean for education today? Well, I mean, I think it's very similar to the other questions that you were, you know, that we were that we were talking about. And basically, yeah. the research shows that fifty years of behavioral science shows that that certain kinds of rewards, I call them if-then rewards, controlling contingent rewards. If you do this, then you get that. Fifty years of science tells us that if-then rewards are very are actually effective for short-term algorithmic kinds of tasks. We like rewards to get us to focus. We follow the rules to get the stuff done. But the same body of research, again, 50 years of behavioral science tells us that if-then rewards are not very effective at all for more complex, creative tasks with longer time horizons. And so, so what we have is a set of these motivational mechanisms that we use in, in organizations. If you do this, then you get that, whether it's a carrot or a stick. 
And we've imported a lot of them into our education system as well. And I think what's frustrating to me is that they are leaving aside, like, what's humane, what's not, blah, blah, blah. Let's forget that conversation altogether. Um, we're not making decisions based on evidence. And the evidence says that if then rewards are great for the simple algorithmic stuff and not so great for the other stuff, and we end up using them for everything, whether in schools or in the company. And, and, and as the economy migrates more towards work that is hard to outsource, hard to automate, uh, we need, I think, a different motivational mechanism. The good news is that, as you mentioned, your self-determination theory and other strands of psychological research give us some clues about how to do that. Let people have some control over what they do and how they do it, autonomy. Help people get better at something that matters. Help them make progress, mastery. Um, let them do what they do in service to something larger than themselves, purpose, or at least have them know why they're doing something rather than merely how to do it. Yep. And, and, and I think that we, along with, as you were saying, along with the content of the education, we need changes in, in essentially the motivational schemes we're using because the ones that we've been relying on, science is telling us, are, 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 have grown quite out of date. No, this is great stuff, Dan, and, and we've got a couple of minutes left in the segment, and, and, and you're a dad, and, and um, you mentioned your daughter uh, possibly going into engineering. What, uh, what approach are you taking to uh, finding an appropriate higher education for her, for her and your other kids? Well, you know, uh, you know, I just try to get out of their way um, more than anything else. Um, you know, I really, I really think that the, the, that with, with higher education, when my own kids are making decisions about higher education, is are you going, are you going to go to a place? I think that, that that one's experience in higher education is really on the shoulders of the individual. Um, that you can go, one can go to a great institution, and if and, and if one isn't working hard and exploring and taking risks you're not going to get anything out of it. Meanwhile, you can go to a, you, one can go to a less prestigious institution, and if you work hard and find opportunities, you can have a great education. So I really think that much of it is on the shoulders of, uh, shoulders of the individual. To me, you know, the, the, the exploration that takes place in, in higher education should be, um, what am I good at? What are my unique strengths? And what, how can I use those unique strengths to make some kind of modest contribution to the world? And... And I think you go to a place that allows you to ask those questions and make those discoveries, but recognizing that a lot of it is on your shoulders rather than the institution's shoulders. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, you know, final question before we uh, we uh, we wrap up with you and, and and go to our next segment with Mark Somerville. So what's what's next on your radar? What's uh, got any new books, projects, or cool things that our audience uh, would like to hear about? <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to figure that out right now. We, as you mentioned at the top, uh, we did a TV show uh, last year. So that took a lot of my time. And so, um, and now I'm um, trying to figure out what the next big project is going to be. Um, it might be about, uh, it might be about, uh, probably be about somewhere around, around work and education and behavior. It tends to be where my interests always go back to. But you'll awesome. have to have me back on the show when I have a new project out. Well, we'd, uh, uh, we'd, we'd love to have you back. So uh, this is uh, Big Beacon Radio with Guest Pink. Thanks, Dan, for joining us. And, and uh, in the next segment, we'll be joined by Mark Somerville of Olin College to explore some of the practical implication of, uh, implications of Dan's writing and, and thinking for uh, higher education transformation more generally.
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Change is coming to higher education like a freight train, but transforming higher education is challenging, full of risks and opportunities for administrators and faculty members alike. If you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom, if you are starting a brand new school or academic program, or if you'd like to boost your own career, let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. Dave is a leading speaker, author, strategist, trainer, and coach with experience in helping bring successful change to both academic institutions and careers around the globe. To learn more, contact Dave Goldberg today at deg at 3joy.com or go to the 3 Joy Associates website at www.3joy.com today. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. To find out more about our programs, be sure to visit our website at bigbeacon.org. That's bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Um, uh, And we have with us our um, uh, special commentator, uh, Mark Somerville, and he's uh, associate dean and professor at at Olin College and co-author of the book, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks a lot, Dave. It's great to be here. Uh, Mark, I want to dig into the juicy conversation we just had with uh, Dan Pink in a a minute, but uh, what... uh, what should our audience know about uh, you and, and your interest in transforming uh, higher education? How did a nice uh, physicist uh, come to, uh, to work in, in, in trying to change uh, stodgy old higher education? 
Well, I guess I, I had the good fortune, Dave, of joining Olin College relatively early in my career when that when Olin was very much a startup. And the chance to be part of that startup really opened my eyes to what some of the possibilities were with regard to transforming engineering education and education more broadly. And I think as we move ahead, it's a pretty exciting time. There are a lot of great projects happening around the world. And I think we're seeing a transition around the types of conversations to ones that I think are in many ways a lot better lined up with the things that, uh, that Dan was just talking about. Yeah, it's it it it's really interesting, and I, I always find Dan's uh, stuff uh, refreshing and inspirational. He always has a little bit different twist on things uh, than than other folks. In listening to Dan just now, what was what what, what were some of your uh, key takeaways for higher education transformation? Well, I think one of the things that I, that he said that I really appreciated a lot was his identification of problem identification or problem framing as being really important. I think uh, you hear the conversation in higher ed a lot about the need and in education generally about the need to teach kids to do critical thinking, right, and to teach kids to be critical problem solvers. And both of those things are absolutely true, but I think that those those two framings are framings that sort of miss out on half of the half of the problem. They sort of miss out not only on the problem solving, but the problem identification, and they miss out just to, on the sort of generative thinking side of things, which I think is a complement to the critical thinking side of things. And certainly that makes sense to me with regard to the work that that Dan has done. Yeah, you know, so that's that's really interesting, and you know, and I I agree. I the term critical thinking bothers me in the sense that it leaves out the creative side. So I've started to use combine them and call them cre- creative and critical thinking. But it, you know, it is interesting that he he called out the the problem finding and and um, reframing. I I I actually was I was struck this time by. Um, is calling out uh, his early experiences in libraries, and I was thinking about my own past and uh, my own library card, and I hadn't really, I hadn't really reflected on on having a library card as being similar kind of unleashing to having the kind of access that kids now have on the internet. Yeah, it's a fascinating point. I certainly remember having exactly those same experiences that Dan did of you know going and spending hours in the library and just picking up that book that. I didn't even know what it was about and, and learning things by doing that. And now it seems like I see my kids doing the same thing every day online uh, with a much lower energy barrier, as much as the energy barrier was pretty low for getting into the library when I was a kid. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't connected that dot at all. But the, the idea that, uh, you know, those of us that hung out in libraries were doing the moral equivalent of, of finding stuff out in the web is, 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 is fascinating. Uh, in, in his, um, in his book, Free Agent Nation, um, which doesn't get as much attention as Whole New Mind or Drive, but a, a, a key problem that he talks about is that we're still educating students as though they're going to have one big job with one big company um, and, and that that job's fairly routine and going to remain uh, 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 steady. What, what, when, what can we do to help prepare students uh, for a world of work as it is where where those circumstances back in the 50s and 60s are no longer the case? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a fascinating question and really a challenging one. Uh, you know, Dan, Dan made this comment about training people for their future and not for our past. And I think if you actually think about what their future is, it's it's actually quite hard to even identify what that world of work is going to be. It's almost as though we're entering this entirely new universe if you think just about what's happened between the time that Dan published Whole New Whole New Mind and today, like Twitter didn't exist, Facebook basically didn't exist, 
the cloud didn't exist. And so just in the course of the time since that book was published, what it means to work and the way that the world works is very different, right? You know, Ken Jennings had not lost to, uh, to Watson on, on Jeopardy. So the, a lot has changed very quickly. And you've got to imagine that it's going to continue changing. So in some ways, I wonder if, if thinking about how you prepare students or prepare kids for the world of work might even be the wrong question, and whether we want to instead ask the question, how do we prepare them to be explorers in this new world that we're, that we're starting to enter? Because I, I don't know what it's going to look like. It's certainly going to look very different from what you and I grew up in. Yeah, I, it, you know, and, and, you know, we, we both, you know, have families and kids and, and, uh, it's hard to, it's, it, you know, it's, it, it's hard to, to give a young person advice. It's, uh, it's hard to, as an educator, it's hard to know whether what we're doing in the classroom, uh, in these, these curricula that go back 15, 60 years has, has much meaning whatsoever. It's, it, it is, it is kind of a scary place. Yeah, you know, I find it's a, it is an interesting question to ask. How do you prepare someone to be an edu- a, a not an educator? I'm sorry, an explorer. How do you prepare someone for an unknown mm-hmm. future? And I think in many ways that if you think about some of the things that that Dan identifies and that we identify as important, certainly, what do you want an explorer to be able to do? Well, you certainly want an explorer to be able to take risks and uh, to sort of make connections between things. You want an explorer to be able to act autonomously, right? Explorers are driven by a by a sense of purpose and a sense of trying to to get somewhere, not not by um by financial rewards. So I think there's a lot of um a lot of the ideas that we talk about and thinking about the direction education ought to go. I think are very consistent with the idea that. We we should be preparing the next generation to explore whatever this new world is going to be, as opposed to thinking about it as preparing workers for the, ne- the next generation of workers. Because I, yeah. I think that may not be the right framing. Yes, and and in in you know in in our book, uh, a whole new engineer, we we pay homage in the title to a whole new mind, and and, and uh, in a certain way, there's there's some parallels in in Dan's book. There's six senses. Um, uh, and in in uh, a whole new engineer, there are six minds. Um, you know, and we were thinking loosely about these things. And and and, but what you know, what what's the connection between the decomposition of of a whole new mind and and a whole new engineer? What what things are similar and different? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question to think about. I think one of the questions that we ask in the book is we we sort of have we have the six minds and we also have the five pillars. And in some ways, the five pillars are this answer to the question of what what do we actually care about? What are the underlying sort of core values? And we identify joy and trust and courage and openness and connection as being those sorts of characteristics that enable um, enable the the sort of next. The, the students who come out in the future to, to enter this new world. Um, in some ways, those connect to, to some of um, Dan's senses. For example, he identifies play and sort of in, in opposition with, uh, with seriousness and a need to be able to work both seriously and playfully. And certainly joy is, is something that very much connects to that. Um, I think Dan's List in many ways, though, I think is is asking more about what are the kinds of um, dispositions or abilities or behaviors that we want to develop, and do we only want to develop sort of um, left-brained types of dispositions, or is it important to develop dispositions that that work in both the sort of left-brained way and a right-brained way? And I think that sort of idea of, of dispositions and ways of ways of thinking and ways of behaving certainly lines up with our and we we identify these six minds of the analytical mind, the design mind 
the mindful mind, the body mind, the linguistic mind, and the people mind. And in some ways, you can think about some of those as having that same sort of left, left-right um, kind of distinction. For example, the analytical mind is in some ways in tension with the design mind. The analytical mind is about sort of getting to the answer. The design mind is in many cases about um, generating possible answers, right? So it's sort of the problem-solving versus problem-framing um, kind of tension. And by the same token, the sort of mindful mind and body mind have this sort of interesting interesting tension. One, one thing that I thought was, um, that was interesting to me as I thought about the six um, senses was the question of reflection, which I think is something that we've talked about a lot, and certainly in identifying the mindful mind, it seems, um, seems like an important idea. And I was trying to think about how that sort of meta-level um, connectivity is, is expressed in, in Dan's work, and I think that's, that's another important idea. Yeah, and and actually, uh, you know, Dan was um, when we started to go in the direction uh, that he sort of said, well, and and it's not and not in a woo-woo sense. And there's a there's there's a certain sense in in uh, in a whole new engineer that we we crossed. We we had in order to write the book that we ended up writing, we had to cross the woo-woo chasm. There's a certain mm-hmm. sense in which. Um, uh, you know, staying on the rational side and talking about these things and as a rational decomposition, and these are the six things that we need wasn't wasn't enough. And yep. and I was struck in his in Dan's conversation that you know about about woo woo that you know and, as, and it's understandable you're a business writer you want people to buy your buy your books, but it seems like that that's part of the cultural transformation that needs to take place um, in as people explore whatever this this new thing is. Yeah, I mean, as you, you've observed, you know, the uh, the fact that Google is now teaching mindfulness, right, says, says something about the, the kind of transition that's going on in society and those, those you know, sorts of ways of thinking that maybe in the past um, had had certain connotations are now being recognized by, by sort of neuroscience as actually being pretty important. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and, and to, to dovetail, yeah, so we we're talking about a whole new mind and, and drive came along at a time in a conversation between Olin and iFoundry when we were trying to understand some of the common threads, you know, so you've got, uh, you've got little Olin and you've got the big university of Illinois. And yet we were seeing at the level of, of motivation, we were seeing some of the same things and, and drive was a helpful way for us to, to have that, that conversation. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that um, I remember having a phone call with you, Dave, where you sort of had seen these students sort of, you know, halfway through the semester um, suddenly become unleashed. And it's a, it's a word you already used today, but unleashed and sort of doing things of their own volition and pursuing all kinds of cool things from starting companies to traveling to develop countries, developing countries to help out to, to doing things on campus. And as we talked about why that was happening, it seemed very clear that this sort of idea of intrinsic motivation was a was a unifying theme, and that in fact you could explain a lot of what happens at Olin, and a lot of what was happening at iFoundry um, using that lens of of how is it that students become intrinsically motivated, and I think that's that from my perspective is really one of the biggest particularly short-term opportunities in educational reform is to be much more intentional about about motivation. It's a powerful idea that's actionable because it sort of takes advantage of the fact that motivation is not just a characteristic of a person. It's a characteristic that has to do with the interaction between the person and the context. And if you can change that context, you can change the motivation. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, Mark, and, and we've got a few minutes till um, uh, to the end of the, the show, uh, you know, in, in writing a whole new engineer, uh, you know, the three of us with Catherine Whitney, it was it was a really interesting journey. And at the end, I think we were all pretty happy with the book that came out. But along the way, it was it was really darn hard. It was quite challenging. What from your perspective, what was it that that made the book uh, so hard to put down on paper? Well, I I guess I would identify two things. Um, one is that every time we dug, there was something underneath. And so we, we kept sort of trying to scrape things back and find out what was the core. And at some point, for example, I remember our sort of identifying intrinsic motivation as being kind of, or at least I was arguing that maybe intrinsic motivation was the core thing. And the more we dug, the more we became less convinced that that was the core. And I'm, I'm happy with the place we got to with regard to identifying these sort of core values, the five pillars, as being the the core that enables uh, the whole new engineer. But, boy, that was pretty deep down there, and I think it took quite a long time to get deep enough to um, to actually have those those five pillars that we agreed on. Yeah, um, I think the other thing that was probably hard, for, certainly for me, was trying to work on a book that was explicitly not an academic um, tome and explicitly was not following the rules of sort of research-style writing. That's what I have done in the past. And so writing a book yeah. that has stories in it was was kind of a new experience. Yeah, I, you know, I, if, as I think about it, it was, you know, when we got to words like joy and trust and courage as being the central words, it was actually, it was really hard to get to those words and to, as engineers and higher educators to, to say them out loud and seriously. It was like, it was like we were breaking the rules of, of academic discourse by talking about things that were fundamentally emotional and cultural. And, and then once we got there and we started doing it, it was, it was, uh, it was almost like magic. Then when we started using those words in public and, and now people are carrying the book around and, and, and using those words, but it was like, before we did it, it was like, it was very hard to get to the point of, 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 um, of, of being able to do it. So Mark, we've got a, just a little bit left. What, what else, uh, you know, would you like to say about Dan's, um, uh, Dan's remarks and, 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 the, and the journey to, the, to a whole new engineer uh, before we sign off. Well, I guess I, I'd say um, I've been surprised by the, the places I've seen the book turn up, you know, that we've been contacted by people who, you know, I, do, I wouldn't imagine would have, uh, would have read the book. So I'm hopeful that, uh, that more people read it, and I'll encourage uh, listeners who haven't had a chance to read it to, to take a look. Great. Thanks, Thanks Mark. And, and um um, you've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with uh, uh, Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest, Dan Pink, and commentator, Mark Somerville. And join us next month when change guru and author John Cotter joins Big Beacon Radio to, Radio to explore the challenges of, of leading change in higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Please join David Goldberg soon for another edition. New episodes are heard every month on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. Thank you. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 